Good morning. Good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast in the Class. Breakfast in the Class today is coming to you from Three Pillar Community Trip out in the Bahamas. Uh, we're blessed to have people sitting and learning Torah together with us every day. Our class today is sponsored by Meyer and Golda Asher uh, in, uh, in honor of Rabbi Farhi. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. It's very, very special. I want to speak to you guys a little bit about what gets us to this holiday of forgiveness. Okay? To this holiday, excuse me, I've tipped my hand. What gets us to this holiday of freedom? And the answer is, in a large part, it is forgiveness. And let me explain what I mean specifically by that. It's interesting to notice that when we start the Haggadah, we start the Haggadah with a prayer. And the prayer goes, This is the bread of the poor. That our parents ate in Egypt. Anyone who is hungry, let him come and eat. Anyone who needs, let them come and do the Korban Pesach with us. That's an interesting opening to this meal. We don't find this opening anywhere else. There are other holidays in the year. How come on Sukkot we don't say, anyone who's hungry, fadal to my sukkah? We don't say that. There's no, in the Ushpizin prayer, it doesn't say that. And the answer, my friends, is a tremendous idea. And that is, every time the Jewish people needs to go from Galut, which means exile, to Geula, to redemption, redemption always comes based on the way people treat one another, people relate to one another. So therefore, if we want to start a seder, the only way to start a seder is by saying, is anyone hungry? Come, fada, eat with me. Let me expand this idea. There was a man whose name was Rav Zusha, very famous. Him and his brother, Rav Zusha and Rav Elimelech. The two of them were great tzaddikim, but they were people who were very humble. So they didn't let always people know exactly how great they were. So if people didn't know, you could think the guy's a regular guy. Anyway, Rav Zusha, one of the things he would do is also he would travel and he would pray in different places. And he felt that being on the move, on the run, without people knowing who he was, was something that would get him kapara. It would get him forgiveness for his sins because our rabbis tell us that when someone wanders, it actually is very helpful for their, uh, for their kapara. So he would go from place to place. Anyway, one such time, he goes to this, uh, to this city and it's Friday afternoon and he arrives right before Shabbat. As the rabbi uh, comes in, he sits in the back of the room, nobody sees him, nobody knows who he is, he's praying very devoutly, and after the services are over, the gabai stands up and he does something very beautiful that you see in many Jewish communities around the world. The gabai, the person in charge of the minyan, or the president, they stand up and they say, if anyone requires Shabbat hospitality, please see me after the tefillah, and they set them up with a Shabbat meal. Okay, Rav Zusha, at the end, He's praying so devoutly. The Gabai, he gives all the guests, all the people, and everybody leaves. So he's left in the Beit Knesset alone with the Gabai. Rav Zusha comes up to him and he says, Excuse me, is there any place I could go to eat some food for Shabbat? Uh, I'm a guest here, a visitor. I have no place to go. Sometimes it happens in the city. You have people who are stuck. They didn't expect to be there. They're in the hospital for Shabbat. They have no kosher food. So I see a guy in shul. I'll go up to him. It's very uh, a hard thing, because if I see someone who's a stranger in my shul, usually the reason either is because they have a simcha, so they're in the hospital, or baraminan, they have a very difficult case, so they're in the hospital. So I go over, not sure if the guy needs a handshake or a hug. And a lot of times I wind up taking these guys, uh, they come home with me for dinner, 
And my wife already knows that uh, she can always expect me to bring home to find some strays, like they say. Anyway, Rav Zusha says to the guy, he says, is there anywhere I could go to eat? And the man says, now you're coming. I gave everybody all the things. They all left already. Half of them live on the other side of town. The only guy that's nearby is the actual president of the synagogue. He, he, has, a, he has an open house. Anyone can come. He's a very wealthy man. Anyone's welcome to join him. There's only one problem. The problem is that there's a condition. You know, they say conditions of carriage. The guy has one condition if you want to come to his house to eat Shabbat or Yom Tov. And that is at his Shabbat table, he only has people who are scholars, who learn Torah. And he asks everyone at the table to say a Dvar Torah, to share words of Torah at his table. He says, but I see you praying. You look like you pray very uh, devoutly with a lot of concentration. You're probably a big rabbi. Rav Zusha looks him right in the eyes and he says, Rabbi, me? He says, no, I'm the biggest Amaretz in the world. I don't know anything. I don't know anything. I don't know any Torah. He says, well, if you don't know anything, I'm not sure. I don't know if I could take you there. That's his one condition. So the rabbi says, look, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know anything. I'm a hungry Jew. I need to eat something. The guy says, you know what? It feels like you're just saying that to be Anaf. He goes, no, I'm telling you. I never really learned properly. He says, you know what? You'll come up with something. He says, I don't know if I'm going to come up with something if I don't have anything to say. He says, listen, you're driving me crazy. Go to the guy's house. Sit in the back of the room like you sat in the back of the shul. Make your kiddush quietly. Eat your food. Don't make any eye contact. And maybe you'll escape unarmed. <laughs> the guy does it. The rabbi goes. He sits in the back. He makes kiddush. He starts eating. But like they say, no such luck. The Baalabayit sees the guy come in late. He walks up to him. He says, wow. Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to my house. So happy to have you here with us. You know, Fadal sit down. He gives him some uh, a kiddush, challah. Right? Everyone else is already in the middle of the meal. The rabbi has an empty plate. He says, listen, in this house, we're so excited to host you, uh, but everyone who comes, they share words of Torah. Shh. Shh. He shushes everyone. Hazik, the guy's eating breakfast over there. They think I'm shushing him. Go ahead, carry on, just eat, don't worry. That was part of the story. Anyway, so he shushes everyone, and the rabbi, Rabbi Zusha, he looks up from his, uh, his bread, and he says, his half his mouthful, he says, huh? like, what do you want? He says, you know, start the Dvar Torah, Bechavon. The floor is yours. He says, what Dvar Torah? Menin Lewin, I'm not a Torah scholar, I don't know anything. He says, I'm sure you must have learned some Gemara. He goes, no. He says, maybe a Mishnah, no. Pasuk in the Torah, no. I don't really know anything. The guy says, listen, maybe you heard a Dvar Torah. Maybe you listened to Rabbi Mansour on itorah.com. Just say something from Rabbi Mansour. I'm sorry, I don't know. He says, maybe you have a parsha sheet, you know, from when you were a kid. Give me something. He says, listen, I can't, I can't help you. I don't know anything. The, rabbi, the Balabite says, listen, in this house, the only people, the only people who eat are people who say Tvar Torah. If you can't say anything, then maybe you don't belong here. The guys next to him, now they're jabbing him in the ribs. Say something. You're making it awkward. Today's generation, there's nothing worse in the world than being awkward. A kid would rather be burned in a fire alive. You'd rather you stabbed him in the face with a knife. He'd rather you chucked him into an ocean with sharks than be awkward in front of his friends. Dad, so awkward. Okay. So, you're being awkward. Say something. 
The guy says, how can I, if I don't know anything, I have nothing to say. You see, part of Galut was not, you're not revealing who you were. You had to be treated like a regular guy. And then that kind of restored your humility. So the whole point of his traveling around is not so that people gather around them, ooh, wow, what a big sadiq, what a chacham. He says, I'm a bar, I don't know. Anyway, he says, I'm sorry then, you have to go. All of a sudden, a voice comes out, not from the heaven, but from a holier place, from the kitchen. The guy's wife says, Mechila, you're throwing someone out of my house? Anna shatra. I make the nicest house. I make everyone feel at home. Uh, my middle name is Fadalina. Like, you understand? You're not throwing... If the guy didn't send him, that's one thing. But now he's in my house, you're going to throw him out because he didn't say a Torah. Not on my watch. I'm putting my foot down. The guy knows. The last time he put his foot down was when he cracked the glass under the huba. It's not happening. It's over. So he's, uh, you know, he wants... All right, but his face, he's not happy. The guy sitting next to the rabbi says, Listen, you make... The guy's a... He's hosting you. He's doing you a chesed. You can't say something. It's not nice. Hakarat atov. I guess hakarat atov was the magic words. So Rav Zusha says, look, the only thing I know, I say tehillim, I'm a simple Jew. I know tehillim. So they say, okay, so say tehillim. So he says, I'm going to say a pasuk in tehillim then. He says, I have a question. From the tehillim to the Haggadah. Okay, let's hear what the guy has to say. He says, in the Haggadah, we say, Zecher Lemigdash Kehilel. Who just said that? Sadeket. Zecher Lemigdash Kehilel. A remembrance to the Mikdash, like Hilel Hazaken, Shehayat Korchan used to make a sandwich. He says, if they're making a memory of him, the guy says, the rabbi, he's making himself like he's a dip, you know? He says, if we're making a memory of him, obviously he was a tzaddik, right? Everyone looks at the guy like he fell off the moon. You bring me a Dvar Torah that Hillel was a tzaddik? Obviously. He says, I'm just saying. It says, Zecher lemikdash ki Hillel. We're making a Zecher of him. He must be a tzaddik, right? Everyone says, okay, right. What's your question? He goes, but in the Tehillim it says, Ki Hillel Rasha. Now, obviously, this is the dumbest question of all time. The sentence goes, Ki Hillel Rasha, because a wicked man praises the desires of his heart. You know, you have a guy who all he talks about, the Sadiq, all he wants to talk about is the Torah he learned. Where is he? He was just here a second ago. He just walked by inside. Every time I see him, he wants to tell me another Devar Torah and Hidush. Abus Hayato. Right? He doesn't miss a chance to tell me Michael Silverman over there. If I see him, he don't want to tell me what's the weather, how the giants... He wants to tell me the gematria of Hashem's name is the same. He's bringing me chidushim non-stop. A person who's a sadiq, all he wants to talk about is the good things that he's learned, that he's done. He wants to influence other people. But Hillel Rasha, it's nafshok. Everyone's laughing. What a dumb guy this guy is. Hillel says over the Agada is a sadiq. It says over here, Hillel Rasha. It doesn't mean Hillel the guy. Hillel is a word in Hebrew. It means that Rasha praised. Everyone's laughing. They're laughing. Who's laughing the most? The Baalabai, the owner of the house. He only has scholars in his house. Now this guy, he has here a clown. Everyone's laughing. Finally, the Baalabai, he's laughing enough. He says, listen, guys, shh, shh. Let's hear, let's hear the answer of the Tamid Chacham. Rav Zusha looks the Baalabai right in the eyes. And he says, 
But I found the answer. You know why Hillel in the Haggadah is a tzaddik? Because he starts off the Haggadah by saying, call the chfid, anyone who's hungry, let him come eat. Call the tzrich, anyone who needs, let him come to Korban Pesach. He invites the guy because the guy needs it. Not because he wants to get something out of it. But the Hillel of the Tehillim is a Rasha. You know why? Ki Hillel, Rasha, etavat nafsho. He wants something for himself out of it. He wants something that he has an agenda out of it. He's inviting a guest to his house because he likes or enjoys having the guest come and saying the Tavar Torah. Now all the laughing stops in a second. And they realize that there's more than meets the eye to this simple guy. The Baal Habayit waits till everybody leaves. And as Rabzusha stands up, he sits him down again, he says, please sit. He says, I know that you're obviously not who you pretend to be. He says, but tell me, how did you know that my name was Hillel? Everybody calls me my other name, I don't know, Max. Nobody knows in this community that my name is Hillel. How did you know? Are you a Navi? Masquerading as an Amaretz? He says, what Navi? What Navi? What prophet? He says, I'm a Rasha. Only this last Wednesday, someone came to me to borrow money. And I lent them money, and I charged them interest. Only last Thursday, I went to the Beit HaKneset, and I pretended, you know, that, that something that I already donated the money, I donated, that I paid it up already. But I, but I really didn't pay it. Only last Friday. And the guy is getting whiter and whiter because he's saying that's something that he did. But who did each avera that the guy said on the day that he said it? The president of the Knis. He's now crying. He says, Rabbi, please, I beg you, Michila. Hashem obviously sent you to my house because I need to do Teshuvah. Please forgive me, he says. And Rav Zusha says to him, look, I can forgive you, but you want kapara, you need to go to my rabbi, to a real tzaddik. My friends, there are two levels and layers to hachnasat Urchim, to chesed. Sometimes you invite someone because you care for another person. And sometimes you invite someone because of ta'avat nafsho. You know, sometimes you come to a city and no one looks at you twice. But then, you speak Friday night, you speak in the shul Saturday, and everyone comes and surrounds you because you're a speaker, all of a sudden, everybody wants to have you for lunch. Achnasar ochim, Rabbi. Achnasar ochim, my foot. It was achnasar ochim last night when you didn't know who he was. Now already, you want some nice stories. You want some nice jokes. You want to be the guy who's walking the rabbi back to your house. That's not achnasar ochim. That's Hachnasat Kavod. What we're learning in the story of the Haggadah is that when Am Yisrael is in Galut, when we're in exile, the key to exile is caring for another Jew. In every exile that we've had, we've gone into exile because of hatred amongst brothers. So the solution to Galut is always, as we know, Ahavat Chinam, loving Needlessly. You know, the Benish Chai points out something that has become a very popular idea recently. But to me, it's one of the most powerful ideas of the Seder. 
There's two tibilas. There's two dippings in the seder. One dipping is we dip the maror into uh, the the karpas into the salt water. The second dipping is that we dip the maror into the charoset. My friends, our rabbis tell us the Ben Ishchai says that the two dippings in the beginning of the seder and after we eat the matzah represent the two dippings that we have in the Torah. The first dipping is the Jewish people, the brothers of Yosef, dipping his coat in the blood of a goat and starting the process that took us down to Egypt. So hatred between brothers brought us into Galut. And the second dipping is when they dip in the Korban Pesach in the blood and they put it on the doors. And the mitzvah of the Korban Pesach is that you had to do the Korban Pesach with enough people gathered around to eat it together. If there wasn't enough people to eat the seh, to eat the, the sheep, what would you do? You would go and invite your family, invite your next door neighbor. You had to have enough people. Tachosu al it says. That means that one dipping represents the Jewish people coming apart at the seams, hating one another. And one dipping represents the Jewish people coming back together. In the end of times, in the time of Mashiach, we know that not everyone makes it across the finish line. But there's something that we could do, number one, to bring Mashiach faster. And number two, to merit to be amongst the people that greet the Melech HaMashiach. And first and foremost in that list is the way we treat one another. I read something magnificent in the name of Shalom, Rabbi Shalom from Zvil. He says a fascinating idea. We look the two eyes of a person and the mouth of a person, those two elements, the part that we use to judge someone and the part that we use to speak badly about someone. We know that when a Jewish person goes to the mikveh, he becomes pure. Says Rav Shalom of Zavil, you know why a Jew who goes in the mikveh is pure? Because when you go and you dip in the mikveh, your eyes are closed and your mouth is closed. The purity of a Jew is when they are not looking negatively at someone else. When they're not speaking negatively about someone else. So my friends, if the story of Pesach begins with genuinely inviting someone into our homes, what is the lesson for all of us for the entire year? Because the essence of a holiday is not designed for the holiday. It's designed for us to take from the holiday into our everyday, into our lives. And our rabbis write something very, very deep. And they say as follows. Galut, exile, is not only when a person is in a foreign country. When there's an iron curtain around the walls of that country and you can't leave. It's not only when you're in Egypt or when you're in Rome. But a person, each and every one of us, go into states of exile. And we go into states of redemption. A couple that's trying to have children who can't have children, is in a state of Galut. A single person who cannot find their nasib is in a state of Galut. Galut means where you are, not where you are supposed to be. When the life you're living is not the life you're supposed to be living. When you're suffering difficulty with your children and there's no harmony in the home, that home, you might be home, but you're in exile. You're in exile at home. I will never forget the time when I went to the, to the Western Wall 
and I was taken by the guy who was right in the beginning, when I, maybe one of the first times I went. And I was praying by the wall, and one of the guides said, come with me. And he took us into the tunnel. And in the tunnel by the Kotel, there's a glass floor right by the wall. Most of the women have not seen this because it's in the men's prayer section. But there's another one of these glass walls, these glass floors, excuse me, in the tunnel tours. And you can stand on this thick glass and look down, and what do you see? That under the floor where you're standing, the western wall continues down further and further and further. You can't even see the floor, it's so far down. And I remember as a child that it made a tremendous impact on me. Because it made me realize that I was standing right by the wall, right by the courtel, right where my forefathers had prayed. But look at how far we were from standing in their shoes, from walking in their footsteps. So geographically, we were right at the courtel. But on a level, we were so far from the level they were standing on. And I was looking down in this glass, and I could see so far away we were from where they were. That means that you could be at the house of God and be so far away from God. One of the most difficult moments in my life was at a bar mitzvah. It wasn't anyone from this community, Baruch Hashem. But there were two families that had traveled from very far away to do a bar mitzvah at the Western Wall. Because the Western Wall is a place of tremendous holiness, the last remnant of the Beit HaMikdash, correct? May, we speedily, may it speedily be rebuilt in our days, may we return there once again. And the two Bar Mitzvah boys, they flow in, they fly in all the way, 12 hours, 10 hours on a plane, beautiful, prepared so, so well, magnificent. And then, at the Bar Mitzvah, something happened, it broke my heart, it brought me to tears. I don't know if you can already guess what's going to happen. The first bar mitzvah and the second bar mitzvah started fighting over who got the bima right next to the wall. First guy says, what do you mean? I was standing here. Other guy says, I don't care if you were standing here. I brought the Torah. I brought the item. A lot of people are standing here. How am I supposed to know? I got the Torah. My family's coming. You guys find another one. Guy says, there's not another spot at the wall. I want this spot. I was standing here ready for an hour. I came to reserve it. They start yelling. They're screaming. The families get involved, screaming at each other, cursing each other, blaming each other, calling each other names. And I'm sitting there. I wish I could have said something. But for the, one of the very few times in my life, I was stuck speechless. And I was actually, tears were coming down my face. And eventually, eventually, I just picked up my hands. I couldn't speak because I was overcome with emotion. And I just picked up my hands and I pointed at the wall. This is the reason why the temple was destroyed was for Jews fighting with Jews. And here you are, you flew your child 10,000 miles to come here to drive a heart into God's heart, a stake, a knife, and remind him why we still haven't had the Beit HaMikdash again? To scream and curse at one another here? I wish I said it like I said I couldn't talk all I did was point at the wall until eventually one of them said nah you know I've got to say the whole curse in Arabic walked away vomits or somewhere else I wish they both would have stayed home I wish those kids did not have that vomits for that day I wish a kid had not, one of them had not prepared his bar mitzvah portion. 
so that they wouldn't have brought them to the Kotel, so they wouldn't have made the Chilul Hashem, so they wouldn't have taught their kids that that's the most valuable thing. That's the lesson that that kid will remember forever on his, uh, in, in, etched in his memory, his Bar Mitzvah. Right? Kids, you remember the Simachot. What will the kid remember? That's what he's going to remember. Bar Minan, our long galut, my friends, we pray to God and we say, God, save us, take us out. The Shana Yerushalayim. And you know what God says to us? You keep talking about Israel. Could you buy the ticket? Could you pack your bags? Could you book a hotel? Packing a bag, buying a ticket, booking a hotel for Geulah is about one thing. It's about deciding to welcome another Jew into your home, into your heart. And most people think the Jew that we have to invite into our heart is a stranger. The number one Jew you have to invite in your heart is your own children. The number one Jew you have to invite to feel welcome in your home is your husband, is your wife. Sometimes a person can feel not at home in their own home. Sometimes a person can feel not respected, not valued in their own bedroom. Anyone who's hungry, let them come eat. Anyone who needs, let them come have a Korban Pesach. My friends, so how do we fix this? The only way to fix this is with forgiveness. It's to forgive people. Now most people think forgiving is something you have when you have a fight. But it's not true. Forgiveness is something, even on a stupid thing, on a silly thing, on something that didn't matter so much. Someone, you had your plate on the table over here for breakfast. The guy came, took the two tables, moved your plate on the one plate. You're going to say something to the guy? No. How do you feel here? What a dick. What a ah. Who raised this guy? He raised in a barn. You understand? We don't think of forgiveness for that. Because I'm not in a fight. He didn't say anything to me. I didn't say anything to them. Forgiveness means not holding a negative feeling in your heart. Because those negative feelings that we hold in our heart even not for the other guy, even just for me. It's poison, it's a curse that we carry with us. You know, I don't know if you know kids, we talked about the other day, some kids, they have a, a nut allergy. Hazi, they feel their lips are starting to get itchy. They feel their arm is starting to get puffy. What do they do? They take the EpiPen, they have to take the needle, stick it in them. Hurts. Could you imagine a person carrying a needle with them? The guy sticks himself, you say, oh, you're allergic to peanuts? No. Allergic to uh, the, the uh, sesame seeds? No. Allergic to fish? No. You allergic to anything? No. I'm just sticking myself. Why? I don't know. What does it hurt? Yeah, it kills. Bleeding. Carrying around a grudge. Reviving a grudge. Giving a grudge oxygen is constantly stabbing yourself with that pain for no reason. You get nothing from it. Only wejaras, only acid reflux. You're only hurting yourself. And you keep bringing it up, and you keep talking, and you keep saying it, and you keep thinking about it. I want to share with you a, a, a story which made a big impact on me. Rav Chaim Salavechik is the forerunner of the yeshiva, well, maybe the middle, but maybe the powerful figure in the house of yeshiva Brisk. 
His father was famous, was known as the Bet Alevi. One morning, Rav Chaim is sitting in the, in the Bet Knesset with his father. In walks the local butcher. The butcher sees the rabbi, walks up to him, starts screaming at him in front of everyone in the community, cursing him in the shul, in his own shul. Yelling at him, he's a Amaaretz, what does he know? What kind of chutzpah does he have? Screaming, cursing, yelling. Everyone is shocked. I've only ever seen this, by the way, once in my life. Someone should humiliate, scream at, curse at the rabbi in front of everybody. Once in my life. And it was more than enough for me to see. Anyway, the rabbi sitting there doesn't say a word. Not one word. Finally, the butcher has enough. He said his piece. The choicest meat the selection, he said. He walks out of the Beit Knesset and the rabbi runs after him. And as the door is opening, the rabbi says the first words that he said since the guy's tirade began. He shouts after him, he says, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. People are blown away, but they've been caught off guard. They don't know how to think, what to think. But this is the story, the story that happened, that's how it happened. The next morning, someone runs into the bed and said with news, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi. This is the son of the Beit HaLevi is recounting the story. You don't know what just happened. The butcher, the next morning, went to the marketplace to choose animals to buy for his uh, uh, abattoir, for his uh, butchery. He's checking out the animals. One of the animals, one of the cows, kicked him in the head and he died this morning in the shuk. Yesterday he came, humiliated the rabbi. He died this morning. Everyone was expecting the rabbi to feel gratified. The rabbi starts screaming. He's crying. I can't believe it. Maybe he passed away because of the kipeda, because in heaven they know I have a, something in my heart against him. I didn't forgive him. Maybe, you know, the, maybe it's my fault. Maybe his blood is on my hands. He's crying. He opens up the Aaron. He's praying. My friends, the rabbi would not be consoled until his son pulled him aside and he said, Abba, I saw you with my own eyes. You ran after the man. You didn't open your mouth. You ran after him. And the only thing you said was, you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. What more can you have done? And the father, distraught, he says to his son, the Beit are you sure? Are you sure you're positive? I said it. Did I say it three times? What was my face like when I said it? He reassures his father. The father calms down a little bit. But he never forgave himself. For the duration of the year, he said Kaddish in the man's memory. He learned in his memory. Every year for the rest of the rabbi's life, he kept the yard site of the butcher who humiliated him publicly. Why? Because he couldn't have forgiven him more. But the rabbi understood that you can forgive someone with your mouth, but it doesn't help if you don't forgive him with your heart. If you don't let go. My friends, when a person needs to move from Galut to Geulah, what do they need to do? They need to move away from where they are. They need to move away from the positions they've taken. And that's why 
when we end Baruch Atah Hashem Ga'al Yisrael, we mention Geulah, what do we do? We take three steps back and three steps forward. Why do you take three steps back if you're going to take three steps forward? You're in the same place that you were. And the answer is, when you took three steps back, you got to see your position from another perspective. And now you can go back to your position. And now you could reevaluate it, having seen it another way. On the holiday of freedom, who do we need to free? Moshe begs Paro, let them go, let them go, let them go. You're keeping them in prison. My friends, who with our grudges, who with our anger, with our revenge, with our upset, with our unwillingness to let go, who are we holding captive? There are many people in our hearts that need to get out. But ultimately, ultimately, if you are guarding the gates to your heart, not letting one of those slights go, you know what she said. You know how many people she invited, but me she didn't have room for. Do you know who who he brought Sidurim to? Everyone but me. Do you know? Do you know? You know what you've done? When you guard the entrance to your heart, to make sure that nobody escapes, that no good deed, that no bad deed, excuse me, goes unrevenged, unavenged. Number one, you've turned yourself from a free person, from a CEO, from a beautiful homemaker, you turn yourself into a prison guard. But number two, when the gates of your heart are shut because you won't let anything out, those gates are not discerning. They also don't let anything or anyone in. You become a person who slowly but surely becomes incapable of loving in the way that you used to love. We all know angry people. Worst, worst victim of your anger is yourself. And I'll end with a famous line. Anger is punishing yourself for the sins of others. Who gets the heart attack? You get the heart attack. Who's burping up uh, acid? You're burping up acid. Who can't sleep tossing and turning thinking about this? And uh, he's sleeping like a baby. Anger is punishing yourself for the sins of others. Just one second. Take your hands with me for one second. Let it go. <laughs> Just let, let it go. Oh. I want you to take a person that you're upset at, I want you to visualize their face right now in your mind. Can you? I'm only asking you to do this because you already finished breakfast. I know if it was during breakfast, you'd lose your tears, your appetite. I want you to imagine someone's breakfast. You see their face in your mind, the guy got you upset, the woman. Now I just want you to imagine that that face is fading. And just fade to black. Or white, whatever. Drifting away like so many crumbs into the air that the seagulls take them. Khalas, just let it go. How much room do we make for ourselves in our own heart, for our families, for our own dreams? When we don't take up room on the hard drive with all those pictures and videos that we're storing. 
You ever had to delete stuff from your iPhone because you don't have no more storage? Your heart and your mind is exactly the same way. You're holding all those videos, you're holding all those pictures, ain't no more room for pictures of your baby. Delete, delete, delete. I don't know how to do that.